You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Some of the rocks were as big as potatoes, and the eggs were hitting the limo with considerable force. But Nixon was ready to take that to the bank. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Yokes mixed with political placards used as missiles, even a few lit candles. A few windows on a nearby press bus were broken. But the presidential motorcade was unharmed. Not that they didn't hear the commotion outside. The president was safe, but his secretary, Rose Woods, was shaken. This is just like Caracas, she said, referring to the incident in Venezuela when Nixon was vice president and angry protesters had gone after his car with a fury. Well, now, this time, it was in America and young American protesters, hundreds of them, in October 1970 in San Jose, California, just four days from the midterm election that year. A big opportunity. 23 states in three weeks, the President of the United States utilizing Air Force One, here supporting George Murphy from a tough Democratic challenger for Senate. Big crowd, good people, Governor Reagan in tow, but in between two stops getting to the car, lots of protesters. These protesters will not be the future of America, Nixon said. They won't keep me locked up in the White House. That's the kind of message he gave in San Jose. And then, as he got in his car, the mob, the rabble, loud, obnoxious, peace signs, and other signs, too, Nixon saw it and jumped onto the top of the presidential limo, like it was a rally for him. Up went his two hands in victory signs, and then just enough time for him to get back down inside the limo before the flying breakfast and pebbles. That would be good for him to politically counterattack those who carry a peace sign in one hand and a brick or a bomb in another. Violence, chaos, lawlessness, youth, violence. These were the words that you would hear over and over again. It's likely that 99.9% of that crowd wouldn't even consider making a bomb or anything more than a protest sign. Nonetheless, Nixon stayed on message. Eggs didn't bother Nixon. He knew getting out there And being assaulted with eggs was pretty good for business. But that damn book. He told his staff in a White House meeting, we had the social issue. We've been winning up to the last two weeks. And then that damn book. Scammon and Wattenberg, the real majority, was out that fall. 
It was a book that was being read by a lot of people, including Democrats. It should not be confused with the work The Emerging Republican Majority by Kevin Phillips. That came out during the last election, and that was a book that Nixon liked very much because it told a story that suburban voters were becoming Republican. Nixon seized on that. If you gave them the right message, Democrats would switch to the Republican Party, whether they gave up their registration or not. That was Kevin Phillips' message. Scavin and Wattenberg took this a step further with a message for Democrats in the midst of the Nixon presidency. Democrats becoming more centrist, a law and order message, and then hitting him on the economy. They've been cutting into our issue. Humphrey's been wrapping himself in the flag and riding on fire trucks. Even McGovern's going center, Nixon told his staff. This was the problem. Some hippies protesting him. Not a problem on the TV sets of America. Not for the people he was trying to reach in this particular midterm. And the stakes couldn't be higher. Nixon is in office. A Republican president with a Democratic Congress. Since it's six years from 1964. And 1964 is an election blowout for the Republicans. LBJ all the way. Democrats win in a landslide. It's unusually good because you had the Kennedy assassination the year before. Uh, You also have a candidate in Goldwater that a lot of Americans reject. That's 64. It's six years now. The senators elected on LBJ's coattails aren't running with him this time. He's retired. So here was the plan. To get a GOP Senate. Which if it were to happen, would have been the first in 18 years. He recruits some promising candidates, including George H.W. Bush, a real Nixon man, he'll say, who will take on Senator Yarborough in Texas. Southern strategy is key here in this midterm of 1970. Nixon can live with conservative Democrats who are Southerners who are going to vote for him anyway. But he wants to win an ideological battle. He wants to take out liberal moderates, be they Democrats or Republicans, but particularly Democrats. Take Al Gore in Tennessee, a Southerner, but a liberal Al Gore Sr., you know, the former vice president's father, and William Fulbright in Arkansas, a Vietnam War opponent. He gets his lawyer friends and top contributors, executives at ITT Telephone Company, big supporters, the chairman of Pepsi-Cola, Uh, some Wall Street executives, that eccentric eccentric electronics company head, Russ Perot, to contribute to what's called his townhouse club, run out of a townhouse in Washington, D.C. Democrats have a weapon, though. Scammon and Wattenberg is not just urging Democrats to wrap themselves in a flag and go on defense, but also to go on offense. They do better on economics. On the price of goods, which is going up 7% inflation in 1970, along with high unemployment. It was a risk, though. Democrats could be seen as naysayers. The Wall Street Journal article said they were never happier than when the unemployment rate rose. Happiness is shrinking overtime pay and rising prices to the Democrats. The GNP was flat in 1970, and Nixon knew it. He did some things to turn around. He tried to get the Fed chair Burns to lower interest rates. He's independent, and he wouldn't do it. He made a plan for voluntary price controls. Voluntary. You know, they would simply post 
inflation alerts, making a public show of when some prices went up. Congress calls his bluff by giving him the power to institute real price controls. If you want to live in inflation, Mr. Nixon, we're giving you the power to do it. Knowing full well that he, A, said he would never do that, and B, as it would turn out, it's not a very good idea to simply institute price controls. He'd actually used this power later in his presidency and partially as a result of the midterm that we're about to talk about. He sends a memo to his agriculture secretary to reduce meat prices immediately, next Monday or else. The agricultural secretary is quite puzzled by it. There was absolutely nothing he could do to reduce meat prices by next Monday, and he didn't know what the or else was. Clearly, from his statement to his own aides, he was more interested in this election in the social issue, in pushing Democrats on supporting these hippie protesters that have been protesting him all along, trying to keep him locked in the White House with the threat of violence. The thugs, he kept saying, the student thugs. He told Ehrlichman that in terms of the economy, I really want the boom beginning in July 72. This midterm happens really at the end of the 60s. We're talking about 1970. Culturally, that has nothing to do with the 70s. The news is explosive during this time. It's sad. It can be happy at times. Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix die in this year. Losses for music and warnings about the carefree use of drugs, as Nixon sees it. The U.S. lowers the voting age to 18 from 21. Nixon, since he was a vice president, has been supportive of that measure, but it does introduce some chaos into the next election. Midnight Cowboy is the best pitcher at the Oscars. The Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act is passed with Nixon's signature, banning TV ads for cigarettes. Apollo 13 runs into trouble when the oxygen supply explodes and... It's not part of the story that's told, but aides say that Nixon is extremely worried about this. Here's an American space mission that wouldn't look good for the U.S. government. It works out, but there's terrifying moments. The Jackson 5 debut on American Bandstand, the dancing TV show. Mick Jagger's arrested for, geez, cannabis possession. And the Ford Pinto is introduced. There are postal strikes. All over the nation, there are auto workers striking as well in 1970. Four passenger aircrafts are hijacked at one time by the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. They are flights to New York from European cities. A thousand FBI agents are sent to college campuses in the wake of protests. The FBI are there at one college, Kent State in Ohio before and during and after the events where four students will be killed. PBS becomes a national TV network, replacing its former self, the National Education Television. Elton John performs in the U.S. for the first time. Muammar Gaddafi takes over in Libya. Full of a pretty long reign. The first Earth Day is held, and Nixon also creates the EPA. He creates it, out of other agencies and appropriates money from other agencies 
agriculture, health and welfare, and other things. But he does, he does create and administer the EPA, the first one. There's a large, several large protests in D.C., including a very large 100,000-person, um, including a large protest after Kent State with several hundred thousand people. The first Pride Parade is held in New York. That's a heavy time, and there's a lot going on, and a president with lesser political savvy than the one in the office might write it off. It's a midterm. President's party usually loses seats in the midterm. This trend is not something that was just discovered, you know, by my podcast or discovered by uh, Nate Silver sometime. They knew about this trend already. You usually lose seats. It's, But he thinks he can gain them. Nixon finds a way to link Democrats who, by the way, aren't out there wearing like hippie clothes. They're people in suits. They're very often supported by labor unions of the guys in hard hats that don't like hippies very much. Usually lawyers, they sometimes represent political machines. How do you get link the Democrats to some of the anti-war protesters who just two years ago had made it clear they weren't supporting the Democratic Party or the official candidate? They're protesting the Democratic Party as well as the Republicans. How does Nixon do that? He finds an issue. Appeasement. Maybe the Democrats aren't hippies and protesters throwing eggs themselves. But what they're doing is appeasing, breeding a new generation of bullies. Nixon sends out Agno, his vice president. And Agno is something of a star now in the deep conservative movement of 1970. And as a chess piece to work that right of the Republican Party, Nixon is happy to have him. But each time he uses them, there's a problem. Agnew gets a little bit more credit, especially on that side of politics, for things that Nixon may want to have said. Plus, he goes a little further than he should. In New York, he attacks a moderate Republican. Somebody Nixon very much wants to defeat Goodell, who was a Republican who had criticized the Vietnam War and Nixon's policy there. But he didn't want his fingerprints on it either. And Agnew attacks him directly, saying he's not supporting the president. You should vote for someone who's supporting the president. And this is very real because there is a third party. There's a Democrat, there is a Republican, and there is a conservative, James Buckley, the brother of National Review publisher William F. Buckley, getting a lot of support from that media source, who's gaining. And Agnew doesn't endorse Buckley, nor does Nixon, but Agnew does go after Goodell almost more than he goes after the Democrat. In fact, he compares Goodall to a woman who had gotten a sex change operation, implying that he's changing his stripes. He's not real, real Republican. They didn't have the term rhino. Even in 1970, this is a little too far, and Nelson Rockefeller, the Republican governor of New York, supporter of Goodell, is like, he, he calls the White House. He doesn't want Agnew in his state. It's a time of political calculation, you know, and and political science entering the public realm. James McGregor writes in the New York Times, let's get rid of the midterms. 
It's really like an anti-election. Not only is the president bound to lose, but inexorably, the more sweeping the success of his earlier effort, the more extensive his losses two years later. McGregor writes this in 70, but he's seen 1966. He might be fighting the last war a little here. That was a blowout for the president after the president had a really good result in 64. Um, It was the opposite in 62. Kennedy had a decent midterm, decent one, didn't lose too many House seats, but he also didn't gain too many in 1960 for his party. You see, that's what he's doing that. He does cite another political scientist, Barbara Hinckley, whose study shows that as the number of districts where the president runs ahead of the congressional candidate from his party increases, the worse the president's loss in midterms. Midterms punish successful presidents is is McGregor's point. It's McGregor's point. If you're really bad as a president, don't bring in, as a presidential candidate when you get in, don't bring in too many people. You don't lose too many people because you're not on the ballot to help them in that midterm election. That's the point. That little note that midterm voters were reading in the pages of the gray lady is going to fester a bit, even for me thinking about it now. I mean, nothing fails, he says, like success. He goes on to say that just have a four-year congressional term. Eisenhower advocated for it. So did Lyndon Johnson. Cuts the cost of elections, too. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. It's an idea, but suffice it to say, McGregor's words never caught on in that respect. We have two-year terms. Another political science meme that is taking a, a, that is that is reaching people, it actually starts in 69, but is around here is the Nolan chart. And it's a way to get away from just that kind of left-right axis describing politics like that all the time. But instead, to look at freedom or less freedom for government, uh, well, I should say for economic policy and for personal policies. So this gives you a richer palette of politics to pull from. So somebody like a a student protester is probably going to be more, well, I want less economic freedom because we want government involved there, and I want more personal freedom, where a conservative Republican might be exactly the reverse, and a lot in between. It also will pick up some libertarian beliefs that are out there that left-right doesn't really do a good job explaining, right? A hippie um, might want to be able to use drugs, recreationally, sleep in the park, um, do all kinds of things that would would be considered libertarian and also left. On Nolan, Nixon is hitting like establishment right, like low personal freedom, no morality is important, high economic freedom. And he doesn't care about party. Some of his greatest vote sources in Congress are Southern Democrats. The White House is not to talk about desegregation for this reason, leave that to the courts, is what he's telling his staff. And no, the White House policy is clear. It is against busing. Now, Nixon is opposing candidates who are against the war. We mentioned Goodell. We mentioned Al Gore Sr. We mentioned Fulbright in Arkansas, you know, uh, who's going to end up taking a uh, young intern named Bill Clinton. I think it's important to contextualize that. They're not like, like, so Nixon is targeting people who have an opinion that the time we're reaching 1970, war's gone on since the early 60s in some form of American involvement and really heated up after Tonkin. I mean, 
it's about a 60 plus percent position to be against the Vietnam War at this point. Nixon isn't working the Nolan charts, nor is he enamored with these midterm trends and this political science. He, he has it in his head, though. He correctly, I believe, saw separation with that trend anyway between the House and the Senate. The Senate was grabbable even if the House might go against him in a midterm election. The violence issue was big. It was new. He saw another opportunity when a government commission advised that pornography laws be relaxed. Nixon found another thing to use on the campaign trail. He was against porn and smut. And he used the term obscene 24 times in this campaign of 1970. His presidential papers were examined later, and there were 26 instances of the word obscene. 24 of them were used in October of 1970. He crusades against smut, and he uses the term three times. During this campaign, his presidential papers will show that 75% of the total times he used that word smut in speeches. Now, Democrats, are they smut? It doesn't matter. He's campaigning against smut and letting the implication lay out there. Democrats in the Senate actually rejected the report of this commission 60 to 5. There was one, three Democratic senators, two Republican senators that opposed um, the rejection, and McGovern was one of them. But you had major Democrats. Uh... Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Like uh, Robert Byrd of West Virginia saying, this is terrible, this, this, this report. It doesn't matter. Campaigning against an abstraction, yet voters may perceive enough connection with a more culturally liberal opponent. That's a political payoff. Don't need to name the opponents. Nixon would never bring up the issue much after these midterms. Here's time. Nixon's involvement in the 1970 elections is exceptional for American presidents. Here's Time magazine. Nixon hopscotched through Vermont, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in just one day, flying out of Washington Air Force One in a frenetic Saturday to Tuesday. He was due at rallies in in Ohio, Tennessee, North Dakota, Missouri, Indiana, and North Carolina. At every step, he pushed Republican candidates. Lifted their hands high for the TV and newspaper cameras and insisted they must be elected to help him achieve a generation of peace. When discussing Nixon, there can be a few effects and perceptions that I have to take head on. Okay, so I want to mention this. Um, first, there's just some anti-Nixon feeling out there. So the minute I mention the name, it's not like the average president. Uh, right. Um, so that's fine. Um, I would only caution those who are so anti-Nixon, they don't want to listen anymore, that... Um, you know, if we're talking about political trends or term, which the whole goal here is to look at midterms, you know, you're going to want to say, he, look, he's a president in 1970. There's no chance he's being removed at this point. Uh, the burglary in the Watergate hasn't even happened yet, although other things have. Um, that townhouse fundraising that's going to start in this campaign is something that's going to be trouble for him later uh, during the Watergate investigation and special prosecutor Cox. But... Right now, there's zero chance of anything like that. He's an important president to study. Secondly, there can be a pile-on effect. There's so much that he did, and it's probably worthwhile to say that not all presidents were taped. And Nixon, we have tape on a lot of stuff of what he said and did. Linda Johnson's calls were taped when he asked it for them to be recorded. And these were calls to people with a message. Nixon's just taped talking in the White House. So I think there's can be this effect that we get more on him. Uh, in terms of fundraising, it should be said the late 60s were not a banner time for campaign finance reform, and it's not always clear how, say, Democrats in the Congress got their money when they were running for re-election. Sam Rayburn, in the past, be before this time, was definitely known to have a drawer, say, and congressmen would come to him, need some money, pull it out, here you go. I mean, the FEC was just not functioning at the same level. And actually, it's going to take four more years for there to be serious campaign finance reform. Nonetheless, with all that kind of preface and half defense of Nixon, we have to say he was running a money game where contributors would donate to, say, this townshead, townhouse operation. It's going to be uncovered by Woodward and Bernstein later during Watergate, we don't know how much was raised in the 1970 election. We do know that at least by the time of 74, 
contributors were encouraged to get Mexican bank accounts, which at that time, Mexico did not allow the U.S. to subpoena bank accounts. Good evening. The voters have turned in a split decision for the 1970 election. The Democrats owed control of the Congress, but the Republicans reduced the House losses the party in the White House normally experiences in off years and actually made gains in the Senate. We call this episode the lonely midterm of 1970 because it would turn out to be Nixon's only midterm, though no one would know this at the time, that the president was going to resign four years later. But I also think he's singularly involved. He is the Republican Party at this time. And he decides to use the asset that he has in this midterm election in a way that other presidents haven't. And it could be instructive in many ways. So the midterm goes on in the last weeks, um, particularly important races in New York, in California, in Illinois, where a relative of Adelaide Stevenson is running, in Arkansas and Tennessee, in Nebraska, in North Dakota. There's important races all across the country. Texas, where George Bush, it has turned out, will not face what they thought would be an easy challenger in Ralph Yarborough, uh, who was a liberal senator from Texas up until this very year, because he's defeated in the Democratic primary by Lloyd Benson, a more conservative Democrat. And Bush can't beat Benson. There's one more episode to relate. Nixon has saved up money for one big blow at the end, a TV commercial. And he decides that instead of airing one in a studio, he's going to use his Phoenix speech where he fought back against the violent student thugs. Well, the Democrats get wind of this, and they go to the networks, like, you're going to allow the president to go on the air for 15 minutes in a campaign commercial and not give us a chance to respond to it. The network said, well, you can purchase that airtime the way the Republican Party has. We can sell it to you. O'Brien then asks the RNC chairman, Rogers Morton, if out of fairness, the RNC would push the networks to allow the Democrats to have a response. They're making a lot of hay of this moment. No, Morton says, as the RNC, our planning has been to save and use this time. It's proper that we use it. Morton points out, as a group, you've got Democrat incumbents who are entrenched, and we're trying to beat them, and that's not an easy thing to do. We need every weapon we can. This was part of our plan. You know, we didn't put money into things earlier because we planned on this TV ad. Nobody budges. Lawrence O'Brien gathers up a very hasty fundraiser, which is assembled, um, and it's kind of helped by the fact that they see this unfairness in the RNC. And they get Edwin Muskie, Edmund Muskie, to film something, and all they can really do is a quick commercial in his living room in Maine. Nixon's doesn't go well. Stand up, and we counted against the rock throwers. Here's Richard Reeves. Tape cut to 15 minutes was grainy. The sound boomed and dropped as it had in the hangar 
of where the Phoenix rally was held. Nixon's own attorney general, John Mitchell, said, The president looks manic. Meanwhile, Muskie gives a fairly calm speech that's celebrated in the networks. He tries to dislodge the Republican argument that there's some kind of, like, student thuggery that the Democrats have had something to do with. He says, look, when you're confronted with a problem where someone's not behaving, there's two ways to handle it. And one is to attack them, and the other is to try to be constructive. And the Democrats are doing the latter. And, uh, you know, Muskie had his moments, and this was one of them. And his service in the midterm is going to propel his campaign in 1972. Of course, it won't go well, Muskie for president, but that's another story. Richard Reeves writes in Nixon Alone in the White House, Buckley, James Buckley, running for senator in New York, provided Nixon one of the few satisfactions the next morning. The New York Times, the paper in his chosen state, carried an eight-column headline. Rockefeller and Buckley elected. Democrats retain Congress control and make gains in key governorships. Most of the candidates the president campaigned for lost, beginning with George H.W. Bush in Texas and George Murphy in California. The Republicans did gain two Senate seats. Incumbent Democrats Albert A. Gore of Tennessee and Joseph Tidings of Maryland were losers, but lost nine seats in the House and 11 governorships. So the new House would be Democratic, 254 to 181. No change in control from the previous. The Senate would also be Democratic, 55 to 45. There would be 29 Democratic governors and 21 Republican ones. In terms of total votes, even with the lower turnout in a non-presidential year, the overall Democratic margin in House elections increased from 1.1 million voters in 1968 to 4.5 million in the 1970 midterm. Even without the hearty squeaker, the Democrats kept control of the Senate while losing some seats. Of the 35 seats at stake, 10 Republican and 25 Democratic, the Republicans won 11, the Democrats 21, and a conservative and an independent won each. The best-known casualties included Democrats Albert Gore of Tennessee and Joseph Tidings of Maryland, and Republicans George Murphy of California, Charles Goodell of New York, and Ralph Smith of Illinois. President tried to declare victory after the midterm elections. The public line from the White House is, hey, most presidents had done even worse in past midterms, which was true. And that he had won an ideological majority. In other words, Democrat or Republican, there were more people who saw his politics the way he saw them on law and order and other issues of the day. The results of the president's obsessive campaigning at least Richard Reeves says, was pretty much a standoff. And to his advisors who meet in Key Biscayne, Florida later, he tells John Ehrlichman and others, a must opportunity. In terms of the TV event, it was an inexcusable technical error that he blamed on Bill Sapphire, his speechwriter. The broadcast allowed our enemies to press, to color our campaign as a failure. The important part is not to brush it off as something that wasn't all bad and forget about it, but to learn from it. I want a full-time television man, even if it cost us 100000 or 150000 to have him. 
he writes a memo with certain points that need to be improved, and someone leaks it. So it's... Uh, president and the vice president and most members of the cabinet came out and tried came out and tried to tell Californians how to vote. And, and I'll tell and I'll tell you something, Californians like to make up their own mind. Still, you know, despite Nixon's own feelings about uh, how the 1970 midterm went, and because he had such high expectations for it, really, the average loss back then anyway was 38 seats, similar to today, and Nixon lost nine seats for his party. And the fact that he gained Senate seats, if you count Buckley's conservative party seat and a Republican seat, you know, that's a decent result for a presidential first-term midterm. But Nixon has other concerns. The image of a hermit leader walled off from the press, antagonistic to the nation's youth, obsessed with foreign affairs. This needs to change. Economy need greater changes. He's going to end up using this midterm to learn from, and 1972 will be a blowout re-election for him. So I think that uh, I want to do dive deeper into this particular midterm of 1970 because I believe it's one of those anomalies. It's right there with the 1990 and the 1978 where it's kind of like this so what midterm. Even if Nixon felt it was a loss personally, it, fit, it, it goes against that historical pattern where every midterm is a bloodbath for the president. And when you add up all these exceptions now, 1962, 1990, You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Then you get the few exceptions where presidents won seats. Very rare. 1934, 1998. 2002, you're starting to build a different arithmetic for midterms. And we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm recording this before the uh, 2022 midterm. But certainly, if there's a, a kind of a neutral or positive for the incumbent result in 2022, that's really going to change what we have to say, the narrative that we have to talk about around midterm elections. Uh, so I want to dive deeper into this one. It also shows what should a president do. Nixon made the decision to get on the campaign trail. That's been a disaster for presidents in the past when they've done it. Clinton did it. Um, Wilson did it in the form of newspaper letters and the like. Um, Reagan did it in uh, in both 82 and 86. And, and that that throws that off a bit because... Nixon kind of putting his body into the election, maybe it went too far. 
you know, and certainly the TV mistake was a problem, but it also um, probably helped him win those Senate seats. And, um, you know, those were necessary to, to shake up things. But in the end, you have in this lonely Nixon midterm an example of uh, a president that tried to reverse the trend and wasn't able to. Now, per Richard Reeves, that night, Nixon goes alone to the Lincoln Room and writes in his legal pads, two years less one week or six years less one week. I have learned about myself and about the presidency. From this experience, I conclude the primary contribution a president makes is on spiritual lift non-material solutions. The staff, with my active cooperation, have taken too much of my time in purely material decisions, which could be left to others. They've dragged me to too many congressional problems. My speech and idea group is inadequate. The press and the partisan Dems are hopelessly against. Better means must be found to go over them. Personally, I must recognize responsibility to use power up on the hilt in areas where no one else can be effective, stop recreation, except purely for exercise and on a regularly scheduled basis, need for more social events, need for optimistic, upbeat psychology, need for more stimulating people to talk to, need for dignity, kindness, drive, youth, priority, spiritual quality. He meets with some of the senators-elect. It turns out Lloyd Benson, who had beaten his friend George H.W. Bush, Nixon kind of likes. He also likes James Buckley, who he had secretly helped and Agnew had helped during his Senate election, even though he was running against the Republican Party technically speaking. President Nixon gave Buckley tacit endorsements. Spiro Agnew's help was more explicit. Oh, I do believe that it served to emphasize uh, the fact that I was the only candidate who was in basic sympathy with the objectives of the administration. And this underscored what I've been trying to say, so that I think it uh, certainly gave me a push in that manner. Buckley's going to be a true friend to Nixon, voting along with him in most things, except when it comes to Watergate, Buckley will be among many who tell Nixon that he has to resign. Reeve says, Nixon dictated a calm memo. It seemed to indicate he knew the White House midterm campaign may have gone too far. Contradicting his tough talk inside the Oval Office during the campaign about getting rid of Republican liberals, he now said of those same people, we have people like Ed Brooke and Cliff Case, Chuck Percy, we're coming to this year, and regardless of what they may do to us, our primary goal is to avoid any actions or words which might be harmful to them. They have their constituencies, Nixon says, but try to be with us when they can. And when they're against us, they try not to make a virtue out of, a virtue out of beating us. Don't read people out of the party at this point. We're going to need every one of them with us in 1972. 
I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Hope you enjoyed this look at a single midterm as we are in the midst of a midterm election year. Thank you for listening. If you can, review the sites on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, vote helpful or non-helpful, those reviews that you agree with or disagree with. That helps the program immensely. Thanks for listening. Thank you.